Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. On today's episode, we are talking with Elise Maybe and Amy Ma. Elise is a co-founder and chair of the Patients Advisory Network, or PAN, and a patient partner in various research projects. And Amy Ma is also a co-founder of PAN, as well as a Choosing Wisely Canada's patient and public advisor. We talk about their experiences with healthcare, their reactions to the seven keys in the waiting room revolution, and why we need to change medicine to be delivered on the patient's terms. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Elise, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'd love to hear a little bit about why you founded PAN, which is the Patient Advisors Network, and your story behind it, why you were so passionate about it. Well, thanks for asking about that. The Patient Advisors Network, or PAN, um, came about because those of us who are patient partners, uh, in a bunch of us in downtown Toronto had been to an event and we went to coffee and we shared our experiences and we were learning from each other and we thought, wow, this is so great. Let's see if there's any organization of like-minded people who are also patient partners or patient and family advisors, as we were called in those days. And uh, we searched found nothing. So we thought, oh, okay, so I guess we're going to have to create it. And that was the germ uh, or the genesis of PAN. Then subsequently, shortly after that, two of us were going to be going to a conference in Vancouver. Um, and one of us uh, was very, not me, was very good in Twitter. And she got in touch with the patient partner community in Twitter and asked, you know, who was going to go to this thing and uh, could we meet up and so on. So we very intentionally had a dinner with a bunch of um, people from all across Canada, mostly on some from the US as well, and, and uh, floated the idea there. I stayed for a week after and actually made appointments to talk to a bunch of different patient and family advisors. And that's how I came to know Carolyn Canfield, whom I think may maybe a bunch of you know, the two of us met for lunch and stayed through dinner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and uh, so then uh, when I returned back, uh, back home here, uh, we just created a, an organization and we pulled together 12 of our colleagues from across Canada. We felt very much that if you were going to be Canadian, you had to start across the country. You couldn't start in Toronto. You'd never get out of it. <laughs> so, uh, so we did that. We had 12 people. Amy was one of them. And uh, we took about nine months to birth our manifesto, which was really, uh, who are we? What are we about? And so on. And uh, then we launched our website, 17. And uh, with no, with all volunteers and no marketing money, we just let word of mouth uh, build our community and that's what we did and why we did it and where we are. I have a question. You know, you hear so many terms like um, patient advisor or patient partner or patient advocate. Um, people tend to use them synonymously, but what is the term we should be using or are they all different? There are variations on a theme, I would say. Um, I'll have a crack at it and maybe Amy can uh, fill out <laughs> my blanks, if you will. But um, 
we used to be called patient advisors or patient and family advisors in the early days of patient engagement, when patient engagement was really just listening to us, maybe taking what we said. But patient engagement has matured over the years so that we now actually partner. So we co-design, we co-design, we, we do much more substantive work with our uh, healthcare colleagues. And so the preferred term is patient partners with the understanding that includes healthcare, I mean, um, caregivers. Uh, in terms of uh, patient advocates. Patient advocates are slightly different. They're often people who have a particular issue, a usually single issue that they want to see um, handled in particular ways. Uh, they do amazing work, but they, um, they are somewhat different in that they are more of a lobbyist, if you will. When you think of the blood scandal, for instance, that you know the the addressing of that came about in large measure because of the amazing work that the HIV community had in particular as patient advocates. The work that we do as patient partners tends to be collaborative and working collegially on projects with members of the healthcare community. I would have to say that uh, there might be some overlap because. Uh, you know, certainly in the States, they have, I would hesitate to use the word industry, but an industry of patient advocates because of the way that their healthcare system is structured versus insurance and all that stuff. And there's also people that hang a shingle out on LinkedIn calling themselves patient advocates because they have a background in nursing or in social work, and they help people to navigate through say, placing an elderly family member in a long-term care home or whatever. So it can be a bit unclear when titles are being thrown about and there isn't any consistency. So you really have to look at the context of what organization or what that person's background is. And getting back to my earlier comment about where there's an overlap, um, I myself uh, sometimes use the word patient advocate, if only because in Quebec, we have this system of patient committees for every single hospital and resident committees for every single government funded long term care home. And they rose about because of a human rights issue of the abuse encountered by residents that were institutionalized back in the day. So, you know, and probably with the HIV uh, blood scandal too, there's a certain component of your lived experience that comes into play, whether you use advocate or you use partner. And like Elise said, advocate is more like a, a winner takes all lobbying for a certain position. And some people can wear both hats and some people feel more comfortable with just the co-design and not necessarily for a rights-based uh, type of approach or an advocacy lens. And other people only want to do the advocacy work. And then there are some people that uh, have worn both hats uh, alternately. Thank you for that. That's uh, very helpful. Um, I provide palliative care in people's homes. Um, and I often refer to the family or, you know, in quotations, or um, as my partners in care. And, um, you know, it just strikes me that when I, when I read about um, patients and family co-designing or being at the tables or being um, partners in such and such, you know, I feel like we give less um, spotlight to 
patients and families actually literally being partners <laughs> in their healthcare on a day-to-day in the trenches, practical way. There's also different layers that these folks can be involved. But like I said, I feel like we know less about how to literally partner in their care while they journey through a progressive life-limiting illness. And that people are invited to tables after the fact when they've had a terrible experience personally. Yeah, I think there's a lot of moving parts. I I think the way medical education is taught, it comes from a hierarchical system that was never designed to accommodate women, that was never designed to accommodate racialized minorities, that was never designed certainly to accommodate people with disability. Mm -hmm. And then I think I've seen it best when someone said, You should think of patients, families, and caregivers adding you, the clinician, on to their care team instead of us being an appendage after the fact. Things are slowly changing. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. even. There are probably some pockets, even within a given institution, that are more progressive than others. Mm -hmm. If I go take a step back, like it sounds like both of you have had healthcare experiences um, that have led you to be passionate about the importance of a patient partner or a family partner. So I'm just curious if you're willing to share just a little bit about what that experience has been that was the catalyst for recognizing why this is so important. Okay, so I I think of two stories. I think of my mom, newly arrived immigrant, and I was her firstborn a couple of years later. And that was back in the 70s when people weren't throwing the doors open for men to be by their partner's side when they were giving birth. And so my dad wasn't there. And my mom told me this, of course, years later after the fact, but here she is, totally unfamiliar healthcare system, doesn't necessarily have a strong network of people that have been there ahead of her to tell her something very basic, such as you can actually decline to be the guinea pig on display if you want to. And my mother was a very reserved person and you never get to redo giving birth to your firstborn. And I think it was terrible for her, someone who's very reserved and shy to have 20 people that she doesn't know and no support person of her choice by her side for such a pivotal moment in her life. So there's that. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, I have three children, one of whom had two surgeries before the age of two. So on the one hand, public health messaging says, breastfeed your baby, breastfeed your baby. And my four month old goes in for surgery and lo and behold, I'm his food source. He's 100% breastfed. And the hospital gives me the pump that I need to feel comfortable for the duration that he's under surgery. And we have to stay at least one day, one night for observation, but I'm not being fed. If my child was formula fed, that would be on the hospital's tab. So I just find it that it's disjointed. There's a funding gap and there's a silo somewhere that doesn't recognize me as a key part of my baby, that I had to scramble and go across the street to a grocery store and find frozen entrees to put in the staff fridge. So there you go. And how about you, Elise? So my experience is mostly I have um, been the subject of accidents. I was um, crushed in a car accident at the age of 22, uh, 
followed by smashing my elbow and needing it replaced. And then um, a year, year and a bit ago, I broke my ankle uh, running down the up escalator, I might add. So all on me. But my really pivotal experiences have been with um, the death of my father, the death of my stepfather, and the death of my mother. And they were actually, if you can call the loss of someone you love, uh, positive, they were actually very positive experiences. So when I was nine years old, my father was diagnosed with acute leukemia and given three months to live. And uh, thank goodness my mother was Dutch because the Dutch tend to face things straight on. And so she, um, she told me and my sister right away that this was happening in our lives and that we would have to change how we thought and how we lived and that there would be more expected of us. So we became the first latchkey kids that we knew. <laughs> and um, yeah, but it also meant that even as a child, I understood my time with my father was limited. So when I came home from school, the first thing I did was go upstairs and sit on his bed and tell him all about my day. And he was wonderful. I think he understood too, that his time with me was limited. He did. And so he gave me 100% of his time. I had so much more of a father than any of my friends did because of that. So that was very positive. And a lot of it was because nobody lied to us and we knew what was happening. And, um, you know, anyway, I could go on about that, but that was really, that was really a gift. I had such a gift of my father because nobody lied to us. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's the story of my father, mm -hmm. my stepfather, because my mother went back to the Netherlands after he died and uh, remarried her childhood sweetheart. Um, he was quite an interesting man. He was a physician and they were married for more than 40 years. And when I came, well, he was a physician and he was in his late eighties when he was diagnosed with abdominal cancer. So he underwent treatment for it. He was diagnosed in the fall, he treatment through the winter. In my visit in March, we're sitting there balancing our teacups talking and he says to me so i'm dying and we need to talk just like please pass the cookies right <laughs> typical dutch and so we did and we talked about um you know what what his prognosis was the fact that he decided no more treatment because it was terminal and he was this was his exit and he was quite comfortable with that but his biggest concern was for my mother, who was in a dementia facility at that time, mm -hmm. and how would that be handled? And so we had the gift of being able to really plan out what was going to be for my mother and, uh, and put his mind at rest uh, before he passed. My mother, on the other hand, she was diagnosed with dementia at 80, and uh, she lived in the Netherlands with my stepfather. She um, was cared for by him, he was a retired physician, so he was able to do that. And then uh, one day he had to go to hospital for an emergency operation and she could not be left alone. So I had to fly over and be with her, which I was. It was very clear he couldn't continue. So I had to find a dementia facility for her in the Netherlands, <laughs> which took learning the Dutch healthcare system, figuring it all out. But her primary care doctor was enormous help. 
and um, he hooked me up with all the things I needed to do, the um, evaluations that needed to happen, and uh, the um, uh, different options I had, and so on. So I did all the due diligence, put myself on a waiting list, or put her on a waiting list, and uh, fortunately, while I was there, they were able to place her, and uh, we we could do we could do that. It's interesting because normally people talk about oh yeah, those seven keys resonate with us because those all went wrong in our story. But in your situation, three times over, you um, they resonate with you because that's what made the experience go as good as it could go. Um, and you were three times lucky, I guess I would say. Uh, maybe we need to channel our inner Dutch people. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this culture, we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to face it. We avoid it. And and there's a lot to be said for actually being upfront about it to understand, um, you know, what what might go on and so on. Uh, and certainly because I'm in my 70s now, I'm actually planning for those things. I'm purging my my stuff. I'm getting my will in order, all of those things, because I want to make it easy for my family and easy to make decisions. Amy, maybe I can ask you, like, if, you know, what have you thought about our podcast and did they resonate with you as um, with your own healthcare experiences? Well, I did accompany my mom as well as I could from afar. Uh, she ultimately died from cancer, uh, colon cancer about 16 years ago. And, uh, I think between my father and my two brothers, it resonated with me that it doesn't necessarily have to be the person who has the illness themselves, but as long as somebody amongst mm -hmm. the immediate uh, close family is willing to keep track and have the bird's eye view of where things are going and not be just so tucked into the minutiae of everything mm -hmm. that it helps to move away forward. And that was my first contact with palliative care. And I think they're a special breed of people because I was in my early thirties with a young two-year-old. And so I had to grieve and I also had to still be a parent and a spouse. And that wasn't something that very many of the people in my peer group had to deal with. In many ways, our podcast, you know, we both have expertise in palliative care, but patient advisory network is not advisors network is not specific to palliative care and serious illness. It can be for any kind of research project and very broad. And so I wondered if you felt like these keys and even our mission to empower patients and families um, is beyond just palliative care. If there's a connection here to other kinds of chronic disease or other health challenges. I think so. If I can just jump in, because I think the point about there being a journey and that it could be understood and managed is one that applies to sort of any chronic disease from what I understand, not having one myself, so maybe I'm speaking out of turn. Mm -hmm. um, but even when I look at uh, my own sort of, if you will, health journeys, which are very episodal and related usually to doing some critical damage to myself, uh, you know, there, 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 is, there is a journey, there is a, a route, and it is understood and known. And um, I, uh, the last experience I had with breaking my ankle and having an operation on it uh, two years ago, um, 
there, you know, I knew the sort of mechanical part of the journey. Yeah, I was going to go in. Yes, they were going to, you know, do an operation and, you know, put plates and screws, all of which they did. And I knew that it would take, you know, X time for the bones to heal and that I'd be in a boot for a period of time. But um, there was there was nothing really else around that much uh, to tell me sort of what to expect. Um, or even how to manage my caregiver husband, <laughs> who was mm -hmm. finding it difficult, you know? So. Yeah, for sure. Like, how do you take a, you know, how do you take a shower now and go to the washroom or uh, all these kinds of everyday tasks? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we did have an OT who came in, but basically we had to do a lot of that research beforehand um, uh, just to understand it and get what equipment we needed because I needed a shower stool and a raised toilet seat and all of those other kinds of things, which I would never have guessed when I was first lying in hospital with a broken, broken ankle. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the seven keys are an ultimate goal that you would want anyone and everyone to get to, regardless of their postal code, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they're disabled or not. It's just that there's so many barriers put in place if you're rural or remote, for instance. Uh, there was a number of workshops our hospital hosted on Indigenous health and culture. And the fact that some people actually have to end up doing palliative care in a hotel, not far from a regional hospital, it just kind of breaks my heart that the quality isn't there for a nation like Canada that is supposedly wealthy enough to do better, but isn't and is failing on multiple levels, especially for Indigenous people in particular, that it's not dignified for some people, especially the Indigenous people to whom land is such a strong connection, that they are deprived of that very key essential thing of their being, of their spirituality, right at a point of transition when it matters most that they're moving on in their journey to the next life, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think it's something we really do need to be sensitive to is different populations of people have different relationships with the healthcare system. And it's not so easy to say, well, you need to step up and speak up and come forward and, you know, be empowered um, because people come with a whole history. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's something for us to think about. Um, and if I can just pick up on Amy's point, because as I said, I'm, you know, if you will, bicultural and the Dutch uh, deal with death uh, straight on. There are a lot of cultures that do, and there are a lot of cultures that don't. And there are a lot of cultures, as Amy pointed out, the indigenous in particular, that have particular um, practices or spiritual needs around the whole process of death that are different from, if you will, the mainstream or whatever. And um, accommodating that, that's a, quite the challenge, but I think also, also necessary for all of those reasons that Amy was saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, which is why I think invite yourself, our seven key is, is so important because we should not presume that we have a solution or there's one size fits all, right? Asking people, what is their understanding? What are their needs? How can we customize this for you? By inviting them in and doing that repeatedly, as, um, as Sammy has taught me, is the key because it allows you to continually gain information and adjust 
to what is important to the people. But we shouldn't assume we know or that they want to die at home or that they want to be mm -hmm. flown to a hospital to get the best care. That may not be what they want. And I think we shouldn't, we should, we should stop and ask. Yeah. I mean, Sian and I talk in one episode of the podcast series about the healthcare system, the healthcare system being like a conveyor belt, right? And conveyor belts are meant for mass production, um, to replicate things over and over, a sameness, a standard, right? But what I guess that's the tension here is because what we're trying to say is that, okay, there's something to be said for having standards for sure and efficiencies, but that we're all individual people. And somehow there needs to be a reconciliation between that those tensions of individual preferences and healthcare efficiencies. Um, it is a tension. Yeah, I, I like to call it, we are trying to uh, have standardized customization. We actually want to standardize the idea that we can customize care. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. If it's okay, maybe we can change gears a little. Um, Amy, you are a patient and public advisor for Choosing Wisely Canada. Can you tell us all a little bit more about that? That's the million dollar question that people are trying to crack. And with Choosing Wisely Canada, it's this uh, time to talk, it's time to talk campaign. And we try to produce material that the layperson can understand and also to work with the different societies like oncology, cardiology, and family doctors to see who has time, but it's a, there's multiple moving parts. You're absolutely right. What I hear repeatedly is that when people are not informed, they get a lot of unnecessary, highly interventionist care right at the very end. And it doesn't improve your outcome at all, but it's probably devastating to have all of this aggressive treatment thrown at you and for the family to witness this. And no one's told them, wait a minute, what you're experiencing now, is it, is it just a local minimum or is it part of a larger trend that you cannot fight no matter what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say, you know, who's got the time, you know, to have these conversations, I guess I challenge the healthcare providers um, to think about beginning these conversations as early as possible. We know when people are diagnosed with certain illnesses that from the get-go, they are progressive in nature. These are not chronic illnesses. They change over time. They have um, hills and valleys, twists and turns. Uh, the landscape changes and you know, um, requires a nimbleness and a flexibility. Uh, but with those kind of changes on the horizon, it is important for us to begin those conversations early so that it never derails a clinic. <laughs> and it's not like everyone's scrambling for the time to have the one conversation. It's about inviting these open, honest, realistic conversations from the get-go so that everyone shares in the responsibility of making sure that people um, have honest medicine. I just I like how you say that it's a shared responsibility, Sammy. We want to get to where it's shared and 
there isn't a whole bunch of people saying, no, it should be the family doctor and someone else saying, no, it should be the chaplain and someone else saying, no, it should have been the oncologist. Yeah, <laughs> it should be all of them. Yeah, totally. Elise? Yeah, I was just going to pick up on something you said earlier, Sammy, about um, learning and literacy. And it's actually why you have this podcast is to is to educate the public a certain amount about this. Um, and that's something that's very dear to my heart, because I think with the way medicine is going now and with it becoming more personalized and so on in the future, I'm a digital health uh, fanatic here, if you will. Um, all of those changes are going to be um, requiring us to understand more and more about our health so we can make more and more informed decisions. Mm -hmm. So where does that, where does that happen? How does that happen? Your podcast is wonderful, but we need to know so much more. And um, I would love to see, you know, better education from the kindergarten curriculum on up. Mm -hmm. It should be, it should be part of it. And including the, the conversations about death. I think that children, you know, I, I remember when my boys were, I think, 10, they got sex ed at school and they came home. Their homework was to talk to me about rape. Well, hello, why can't we do homework to talk about death with your family? You know, I think yeah. not, not the same night. No, <laughs> I would say not. No, but I think I, I think we're remiss that we don't do that. You know, we, we yeah. don't prepare people for actual living. I mean, hundred and hundred years ago and so on, people were faced with it because it happened all around them. We're anesthetized from it because it doesn't happen all around us. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we're not, we're not, we're not good at it. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we can encourage people to start asking questions about, well, what if I don't? Mm. And what if I say no? And what if, uh, you know, clinicians have a much easier time talking about what they think is the active option. Um, you know, like doing the test or having more medication or doing treatment. They're not as comfortable talking about what they're comparing that to, uh, which is do nothing. You know, what's the natural history of my condition if I don't choose that. And so we really cannot present options to people just with covering the pros and cons of the treatment or the test. We really need to help people understand what they're comparing it to, which is if I do nothing. And, but, you know. Yeah, but I was, but you know, the reality is we're not really doing nothing. What you're actually offering is information. Well, yes, information, yeah, but information about the big picture, which is hidden, yeah. that information yeah. can become power if you know how to use it, if you understand where you are, and then you can make choices. So the doing, it's not really doing nothing. It's, it's giving information so that they can be informed about the choices that they can make. And, and as you've said, mm -hmm. you know, um, when you provide information that can also, yeah. uh, you know, manage symptoms and make people feel less distressed and anxious and have all these other, uh, yeah positive effects. Yeah. But, I wonder, but I wonder how many doctors are trained to actually give the option of, and this is what will happen if we just take a wait and see approach instead of, I guess with all the skills and all the tools that you've learned in medical school, you're just 
itching to use it mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of letting nature take its course and give that as an option. Well, if we don't do anything for the next three days or five days or two weeks, ABCD will happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely an incentive and a push for newer technologies, fancier drugs, the, uh, you know, bigger machines instead of the the art of medicine, which is to listen. You know, that's the, the thing about the time to talk. It is also the time to listen, at least for the provider side, that that's mm-hmm. part of what we're missing is the the watching and the listening and the picking up on all that intel, you know, around us, around the patient, not just the disease, but how is the family coping? Mm-hmm. And are they walking a bit slower? And, you know, what are they not saying that actually they should be talking about at this stage? And that's a clue. That's a big thing that we should be bringing up. I've only ever cared for people in their home. That's not true. Of course, I trained in acute care, um, but I have practice in people's homes. I've trained in clinics. I've trained in hospice as well, but 100% of my practice is in people's homes. And I have learned very quickly uh, how to work with families uh, and caregivers. And I wonder if some of the problem that we're talking about is because we train doctors almost solely in acute care settings and you know maybe clinics that they really don't have to ever learn in a meaningful way how to work directly with, with families. I have to in the home setting because those families are my first responders. Those families are our doctors and nurses and OTs and PTs and dietitians and pharmacists and PSWs and everything else in people's homes. Um, I could come up with what I think is a reasonable plan, a care plan for a patient. It will only ever be as good as it's been negotiated with the family and it's acceptable to the family and that they can implement it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a non-starter. Um, the way I speak in people's homes, um, the way I dress, the way I act, it, the power differential between me as a doctor and the families that I work with in their home is, um, Well, you're meeting them on their terms. You're meeting them on their terms in their territory. And that is what makes all the difference. Uh, Donald Lepp, he's written a book about uh, his child's uh, journey to get a heart transplant as an infant. And he talks about going into the hospital as though you landed on a different planet, different language, different culture, completely foreign to everyday ordinary life. And my point being that if we do not train doctors to in the care setting of the community and in people's homes, we're really uh, behind the eight ball. Um, It's not mandatory uh, to teach doctors how to care for people in their home, but we're expecting them to work closely in partnership with families. So something has to change with the curriculum. And so when you guys are sitting as patient and family partners, wherever you're sitting, Please reinforce that message. Well, the funny thing is, I think the digital health movement is actually moving things back to the home with wearables and remote monitoring. And you're going to fail miserably if you think you're just throwing a whole bunch of technology and expecting the person 
to figure out this gadget plugs in there and I have to be in front of my Wi-Fi at such and such a time to give you the feedback without bridging the gap and building a relationship. But, you know, the other thing is, sorry, I, I know, Elise, you want to say something. I, I just wanted to mention that, you know, with virtual care, um, you know, and people now zooming into people's homes, uh, and that's happening more often. I, I think there are lots, there's lots of potential. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful um, to, uh, again, bring healthcare providers into people's homes. But in the absence of... Um, a curriculum that teaches doctors, I'll just focus on, how to care for people in their home. It is a little bit scary to now provide virtual when they have no idea what this care setting is really like. They don't understand that virtual care is really care with, you know, not blinders, what are these called? Like it's, you have like peripheral vision. Blinkers. Um, mm. Blinkers. Um, so, you know, I think maybe we can leverage um, virtual care as a reason why we have to train clinicians to know what it's like to work in people's homes with patients, with families, with um, visiting nurses uh, in their own environment. And then you can do virtual care in their home, but we can't leapfrog over the training. Okay, Elise? I'm yeah, so this is very dear to my heart because I think you're absolutely right. We need to we need to train um, physicians for sure, and probably nurses and so on. Uh, they tend to have to deal with um, caregivers and and families as well. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about in the training of doctors. I think there's a couple of things that I'm hearing in our conversation. One that strikes me is when you present treatment options, one of them should be the the what if we don't do any treatment option? And I think that should always be on the table. And, and so how do you handle that? What do you say? You know, if the treatment is A or B or nothing, you know, always it should be A, B or nothing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and how do you deal with that? And how do you talk about that? That's, that's one element. And then the other element, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier about the digital health, that's going to upend healthcare and is already doing so as we've seen with the virtual care. But it, it, I, that takes a certain talent. Right now, the virtual care I'm getting from my primary care doctor is by phone. And it tends to be less of a back and forth than I would wish, and certainly less of a back and forth than in person. So there's some training that needs to be done there. And it's going to, it's going to mean we'll have a very bumpy transition as we go through, you know, having to maybe retrain people who are already physicians and then building this into the curriculum. But patient the patient partners, you who <laughs> we can help because we can become part of that curriculum as well mm -hmm. and help help people mm -hmm. understand what it is to be in a home with patients and caregivers in a sort of an academic environment so that when they actually go into an yes. environment like that, they're not wet behind the ears. Yeah. Yeah. Like simulated lab. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You're in the living room and here's the hospital bed in the dining room, <laughs> you know, like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, and, or right now I have a, a sister-in-law who, who is an actor and she does a lot of work with um, 
what are they called? Standardized patients yeah. for um, training of doctors. Well, we should also have standardized caregivers. So the script is more encompassing. In fact, I might just speak to her about standardized caregivers. <laughs> it's a great idea. What a, that's a, it's a brilliant idea for sure. I, I wanted to ask, as you know, our mission was to target patients and families directly because we felt like this was information that we have decoded that they deserve. And I guess from your perspectives as patient partners on research projects at tables, at healthcare systems and hospitals, trying to change the culture there, do you think we're onto something? Like, do you think we're gonna be successful at making a wave and, and, and making a change if we can empower patients and families to ask the right questions and to know that they can invite themselves and to create this revolution? Or do you think that we need to you know, rethink some of this? Personally, I think it needs to be coupled with the education we've just been talking with, because if we, we have two halves of the equation, one half is the patients and families, which this webinar is addressing, and the other half is the, uh, is the um, uh, professional community. If, if they're not changing in sync, there's going to be a bit of uh, a difficult adjustment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that, actually. Um, you know, here we are setting a fire under the citizens of the world, and they're going to rush the healthcare system like new um, activated superheroes in their own healthcare journey. And they're going to be met, you know, and they're going to ask big questions like, doctor, I would like to know what the natural history of my illness is. I want to know the big picture. I want to look long. I want to know what's ahead of me in the twists and turns. And I'd like to know my prognosis. And thousands of people will come to the healthcare system <laughs> and be met with doctors and nurses who still don't have the training uh, and the comfort um, to answer those questions and will be stopped in their tracks. So we agree that um, simultaneously we need to, and there's lots of work being done trying to help uh, doctors and nurses. We shouldn't pretend that there's no work being done. There is lots of, but it's just not happening fast enough for patients who really need it to make truly informed decisions. Throw MAID in there, the legalization in Canada and it's very scary without making a personal judgment about MAID. Um, it's very scary to think that people will be making a life and death decision potentially with not all the information about their health. Um, so it's critical. Yeah, it's critical, but then medicine is a very conservative culture that changes slowly. I heard that even just for the stethoscope, it took over 30 years before the uptake was generalized. Really? <laughs> and it is necessarily the case that right now, the way we're going to look at research for pick your vulnerable or marginalized population of choice, that even the research ethics has to change. I heard a presentation about somewhere out in Alberta where they wanted to mobilize the uh, meatpacking plant employees. And they had to jump through many hoops with the ethics board of the university to say that having the people in the plant to do the survey was better than having some anonymous person behind an email that was the requirement of how you do conventional studies 
because it takes a lot to build trust already and they were going to ignore a random stranger that they had never heard of, even though that random stranger was approved and vetted by the university. They had mm -hmm. to build in flexibility. It's a global pandemic. People mm -hmm. are dying. So that's one aspect. And mm -hmm. then the technological aspect of by the time you get the research project approved, you've gone through alpha, beta, whatever testing for a, a wearable. And how is that going to meet the rigors of what the patient needs, what the doctor needs, if we're just stuck with the traditional old model that was never built to accommodate the fast paced of cell phone models changing that are expecting to be replaced every two, three years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of my, my pet concerns also is the, is the cycle for research. I mean, some of it will naturally have to be longer, but you know, they, what have I heard? It's um, over seven years between start to finish. And we need research much faster than that. So there, so there does need to be big changes even in the research community. I would love to see uh, at least at the provincial level one research ethics board, for instance, and the data sharing agreements that, uh, that, that people have to do. All of these things are such incredible impediments to having a, a, a fast enough turnaround to the research that we badly need, especially with COVID lurking around. Um, I think we're starting to understand that, but it needs to be addressed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more <laughs> in all <laughs> aspects. And it's, and it's hard to find, um, I really think about my research of how it can be adaptable and, and flexible from the start. And, and, and even, you know, if, if it takes five years, like what will this still be relevant then? And of course that's, but you're absolutely right. Um, but we often like to end our interviews with what advice do you have for other patients or families who are starting a journey that you've learned from your experience? Well, never go I, alone, never go alone. Always bring someone with you. <laughs> yeah, very good point, very good point. I think uh, from, from my position, it is, um, you know, face the truth square on, get the knowledge that you can, because knowledge is power. And uh, without the knowledge, you could be, you could be making decisions, as you all know, that are not optimal for your situation. And it puts you in a place of fear and who wants to live there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And fear amplifies symptoms and suffering. Mm -hmm. And then you know what? People get more morphine. <laughs> when really what they needed was more information. <laughs> yes, I'll take info over morphine any day. <laughs> wow. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciated all your time. I loved our conversation, your stories. This was fun. Thank you. So thanks for having me. It's been absolutely wonderful, this conversation. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.